Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. Welcome everybody to another Motorsport Magazine podcast and thank you so much for joining us. Well, we have another Scotsman this time. We're we're surrounded by Scotsmen. Anyway, we're very, very pleased to say the least to have uh, Alan McNish with us and I'm shouting because there's a helicopter going up the River Thames. Uh, the uh, great people from Audi have managed to bring Alan here to uh, London this evening, despite the fact that he hasn't been home for three weeks. He's been testing Audis day in, day out in America. He's been to Scotland. Now here he is at Motorsport. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. It's the first time I've been here, actually. Looking forward to it. Well, don't say that yet. <laughs> anyway, look, uh, before we go on, I've just got to let you know about our new subscription offer, because it is so important to us. It is that you can save 23% when you subscribe to Motorsport Magazine and you will get a free copy of Tiff Needell's autobiography, which is worth 19.99. And we don't want any comments about Tiff Needell's autobiography at the moment. Thank you, Alan. So, just to remind you, that is 23% when you subscribe to Motorsport Magazine and you will get a free copy of Tiff's new book. So... I suggest you do subscribe because it's cheaper than buying one every month and you know you're going to get it. So it's, you know, why wouldn't you want to do it? Okay, let's get right down to the nitty-gritty, Alan, and uh, we'll start with a comment that I saw of yours, which, you know, maybe you'd like to expand upon, which was when you drove the R15 Audi, which is the old car now, the new one being the R18, you described it very eloquently, as being flat as a fart. (laughs) I wasn't actually meaning the whole car. I was meaning uh, now for 2011, we've had to have quite a lot of restrictions by regulations to slow the cars down. And the ACO have basically had a wholesale change. They're pushing the efficiency angle. So the main way they've done it is to give us uh, less horsepower. And when you come out of the corner and floor the throttle now with 550 horsepower about, it does feel pretty flat in comparison to what we had before. Because it's not just the pure power, it's also the torque that's dropped quite a lot. But in the big picture of it, we as a team don't want to forget and we don't forget what the benefits were before. So they've had to redevelop their strategies a little bit at Audi and came up with the R18, which is a much more efficient car, I would have said, in terms of getting the straight line speed back again. And uh, I think that's where the ACO wanted to go, was to actually try to push the manufacturers into becoming a little bit more efficient. But for us drivers, I would have said that it certainly means the excitement coming out of second gear corners is a bit less than it used to be. I mean, as enthusiasts, as as we'll all no doubt discuss, by the way, what I should have mentioned was, of course, that um, 
Nigel Roebuck is here, our editor-in-chief, and Ed Foster, our associate editor, and the man himself, Damien Smith. We're all here tonight with Alan. Um, I know that one of the things we wanted to ask you was, um, you know, is the R18 okay? It's not as quick because of the rules, but does it feel like a fundamentally good car? The rules are the same across the board for everybody, and so at the end of the day, um, how it feels, I think, is important. We haven't done a necessarily a back-to-back between the 2010 car and the 2011 spec because it was of no relevance whatsoever. Uh, what we have done, though, is we had our first test with the R18 in November. I did that test, and then we've been out uh, to Sebring a couple of times since then. We've had other tests as well. So it's been through its paces, it's been through endurance tests, it's been through performance tests. And uh, I suppose the best thing to say is that when I came back from Sebring after this trip, so we had an endurance test directly after the race, as we normally do, uh, then you get the sort of most up-to-date picture and it feels more consistent. I think they've done a good job in the aero. Definitely you can feel the less drag. You can feel the less power as well. But uh, the, the whole sort of concept, I think, is in the right direction. And I feel quite uh, confident that we've got a good car and a good package to challenge the opposition, whoever they turn out to actually be, uh, when we get to the first race in Spa and then also, obviously, to Le Mans. That's a bigger one. Alan, uh, one of the things the ACO want to do by slowing the cars down is to reach that magic 330 uh, lap time round round the, the circuit to the south. So, uh, obviously, you haven't driven at Le Mans yet, but what, what do you reckon in terms of lap time? The... 3.30 lap time is one thing they want us to be slower and we want to be quicker. Mm. And so it's always that sort of balance. But I think it's like anything. If you didn't hold development back, it would just be totally out of the realms of possibility. It mm. gets to that silly point. You know, if you didn't restrict Formula One, for example, from the 80s, where would it be today? You know, the lap times would be insane because the lap times we were doing at Le Mans in 2010 were very similar to when they ran without chicanes and nearly a thousand horsepower you know so in reality we're significantly slower on the straights than we were in those days but we're doing the same lap time with more corners which suggests to me it's all in the cornering yeah and uh, that's where i think there's been a big development in terms of aerodynamics in terms of car stability in terms of tires and that will continue but uh, they've pulled everybody back they've uh, created us to think on a you know it's like we've now got a v6 turbo yeah. instead of a v10 mm. and uh, that's a little bit more efficient it's a bit lighter <laughs> it's also you know it's got better fuel economy and things like that so there are a lot of gains that i think is better for the car manufacturers and the link between the racing and the road the 330 lap time I honestly don't know, but I'll tell you what, I'll be trying blooming hard to make sure it's decimated. <laughs> uh, Alan, uh, forgive me, just, uh, sorry, Ed, but uh, just, uh, did the drivers last year, were any of the drivers getting to the point of thinking this is probably getting a bit too quick? They need reining back, or, or mm. are you sorry about it? I think in terms of pure enjoyment of driving, yeah, there's mm. an element that you always want a bit more. You know, we want more top speed, we want more cornering, more braking, but uh, the problem is not necessarily just us. When you're, say, coming through the Porsche corners, that's the fastest section. Mm. But if you looked at some of the incidents that have happened in the last few years, you know, Marc Genet had a huge accident there. Stefan Ortelli had a big yeah. one at Monza. Then I think there was a there was a requirement to do something to try to slow the speeds down, but also to 
work as well on safety along the lines of when cars do yeah. go sideways, and that's where the big fin came on the back. Yeah. Um, and so I think they were quite prudent about it, and there's an element as a pure racing driver you like to be on the edge, but there's also an element of it that uh, you like to be there at the end of the race. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just rare to hear from a driver who's sort of, obviously you're not completely happy about it, but you've accepted the fact there's less power, I and mean, usually drivers are saying we want more power, more power, more power. Uh, as long as I've got more than the opposition, that doesn't <laughs> yeah, matter. Right. But I don't think we have. It, it's a, I would say that because of sports car racing going a lot to America, and especially over the last decade, and us racing in America, we've probably learned to accept that there is an increasing swing and balance requirement to go towards to ensure that it's not just pure driving from A to B as fast as possible, that there has got to be an element of sport into it, there's got to be a, an element of it as well, um, of the show in some respects. And I'm not, in my pure heart of hearts, into performance balancing. But I do know that some of the racing we've had in the past, the best racing as drivers we have had, and you can ask a lot of the, the Audi guys on this, is when we were racing against uh, the Penske Porsches, or yeah, the Acuras in the States. Yeah. It's fantastic racing now against Peugeot and Aston Martin and obviously with the Acura as well in Sebring, but some of that real wheel-to-wheel stuff, and that was manipulated a bit by regulations. But, you know, you came off spraying the champagne on the podium and you knew you had to work so hard mm. to get that victory mm. that mm. Uh, it made there's a lot of personal satisfaction and from the team as well as from the drivers, I have to say. Yeah. But we do want more power. Of course, one of the big differences this year, um, for the first time for you since 99, is racing with a roof. Um, now, we know the benefits of racing with a roof in terms of the, the uh, decrease in drag. Um, regulations are very different from how they were way back then. So what's it like in there? It looks, I mean, I was out, out in Sebring with you. It looks very cramped in there, very tight. In terms of, it was 1999 last time I drove with uh, the closed cockpit <coughs> sports car. And the regulations were different. The GT1, as it was then, uh, they had to basically conform to European road car specs in terms of mm. the dimensions of cockpit and windscreens and A-pillars and all this sort of thing. And that doesn't happen now. And obviously the designers are pushing for the maximum performance. Uh, what I think is, in the flip side, you know, basically cockpit cooling is significantly better uh, in terms of ergonomics and driver fitting into the car is a lot better. Mm. Safety is a lot better than what it was back in those days because we were doing 350-odd Ks on the straight at Le Mans, mm. uh, but also maybe 12 or 14 seconds a lap slower. Mm. And so, you know, there was, uh, there was some things that were probably a little bit easier and some things that sig- significantly weren't. Yeah. But right now, what we've found with the R18 that, uh, you know, we haven't got any major negative compromises it's not ideal in comparison to an open car when you're going into the first corner and everyone's around and about you. But when you've got better fuel economy and you've got better straight line speed, then I think that uh, counters it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, can, I pick yeah. you, can I pick you up very briefly mm-hmm. on that point about visibility? Yep. Because at Le Mans in particular, you've got a lot of people out there who are a lot, lot slower than you, and some of them are unpredictable. So is not visibility quite a big deal? I think the nature of the Le Mans circuit, because it is relatively fast and flowing, and you say there's a few people that are less quick, especially in the corners, um, that it's on a, what, eight and a half mile track. Hmm. 
Sebring, we had more cars on a much shorter track, a three and a half mile circuit. Mm. So yeah. Sebring in reality, I think is a bigger issue or Petit Le Mans at the end of the year or Spa where we've got over 60 cars apparently going to Spa on you know a four and a half, five, five mile circuit. So on that side of it, I think these other races are probably trickier right. um, because you tend to, if you look at the average team in GT, for example, and you look at their driver lineups, it's got drivers like Mika Salo and Giancarlo Fisichella who mm. you couldn't say were slow. And so I think the, the base level now of any class when you get to the 24 Hours of Le Mans has got a very, very high level of preparation and also driver level. And that's something that's changed to the positive now. I was just going to say to you, what, I mean, are you aware of that mm. when you're at Le Mans now compared with when you were in your early days at Le Mans? Yep. The overall driving standard is much higher. I think you... Are aware of it because uh, there's more people that are pushing all yeah. the time. So it's it's a two-edged sword. I would have said from my side as an LMP driver, mm-hmm. one of is that people are more aware of the surroundings around and about you, but also the their focus is on their race. Yeah. And their race, like ours, is determined by tenths or seconds, yeah. not yeah. by laps any longer. No, 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 so no. they're not willing necessarily to get out of your way, which they shouldn't do. Um, and they're, you know, they're going to fight for their corner as much as... But that's just part of the racing mm. nowadays. What yeah. I would say, though, is that the general standard of driving is better across the globe than I think it ever has been before. Yeah. One yeah. thing that intrigues me is, uh, as a Grand Prix driver going to Le Mans, it's a big change of um, attitude um, and the way you, you approach it. You've, you've gone to Le Mans um, as a... Well, you, you went back to yeah. Formula One from... Um, yeah. Le Mans, and now you've gone back to back to sports car racing. What's the change in mentality? Um, it was funny when, even though I'd been involved in Formula One and testing beforehand, I, I had kind of forgotten how aggressive Formula One was, even within your team. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean necessarily with Mika, because I have to say, Mika Salo was a superb teammate. Mm-hmm. He, you know, we both sort of had to fight our corners, but we also had to fight the bigger picture at times. Um, but just generally, the environment is not uh, probably as comfortable and relaxed and nice as what it is in sports cars. The biggest mentality difference, I don't think, is necessarily in the drive. And I think it's in the fact that as a single-seater driver, you have got no interest in anything that your teammate basically is doing, except maybe if his lap time's quicker than yours. Yeah, That yeah, is it. Whereas a sports car driver, you have to work within the bigger team environment. And then you have to win as well. So you've got to work with your teammates to a certain element, but then there's that point when you're going into the first corner, or it might be the last lap, last corner of the race, where you've got to make it stick. Mm. Um, and Audi, we've got a, a very fortunate, I would say, team boss mentality, where Dr. Ulrich says, look, fight it out, but Christ, don't crash into each other. Mm. That's yeah. the, the word. Yeah. But we have got carte blanche as drivers, but also as teams within the race, mm. within Audi colours, to, to race. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's something that I, when I look down the pit lane at uh, some others we're racing against, they don't seem to have that open book policy. <clears throat> but I do believe that comes from the guy at the top. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not to say that, you, know, that <coughs> you can't use team orders as well. I mean, if, if one car's painfully fast, they, they will get out of the way. I mean, they aren't going to race you on the track yeah, position. We, that there's, uh, at the end... There's one other thing is that we've been around, like Tom Dindo and I have been together or against each other in, within Audi for 
10, 11 years. So we know each other very well. Uh, also with Rocky and Bernard and Dumas, uh, you know, that organisation is... I would say our team product has been around for four or five years, so we know each other quite well, and we know the strengths and weaknesses through the course of, say, Sebring Week. We knew where the sister car was a bit better than us and at what points in the races. And uh, if there is a point where they are plainly quicker or in a different strategy, I'm not going to impede them. And I know when they're coming up, you know, there's a definite flash of the lights and you can see, you're not silly, you look in your mirrors and you know if someone through the high speed stuff, if he's still able to stay right on your back door, you know he's got the grip potential that you maybe don't have. And uh, there's an element that, you know, you've got such a long race as well that sometimes it is prudent just to let them go Mm. at that period and to move on. But it, I don't think that's something that happens in five minutes. I think that is something that's actually built up over a course of time and people spending time at the track and away from a track together. Yeah. Mm. No, it's, it's, it's nice to hear that it's, the, you know, it's you as the driver making that decision. You know, whereas in some, something like Formula 1, obviously, it's a completely different discipline. But you know, it's always very much drivers being told, this is happening. And I'd, it's just quite nice to hear that it's, it's not, not like that. Okay, there was a big team orders thing last year in Formula 1 at Hockenheim <laughs> and I remember the other difficult one for people to pallet which was back in Austria when oh, yeah. Rubens and Michael and I, I just put my personal point of view across on this team orders are there in so many sports the thing that we don't like as people involved and I don't think fans like is when it's so blatantly manipulated mm. and that's mm. you know that's just a personal point of view but we have to be honest, uh, you know, I follow the Tour de France and oh, uh, yeah. that's a, a perfect example <laughs> yeah. of where there's yeah. so much of team orders. Mm. The, like, come back to it, um, that I think as a driver, I'm in a fortunate position that uh, Wolfgang Ulrich is of the opinion we fight and we race and that's why he's so strong, I think, in the motorsport department as well mm. is because he's got that passion that Audi mm-hmm. needs to be involved in racing mm to develop its product as part of its DNA. And if you're involved in racing, you're involved to win. And mm. if it's our car or the sister car, it doesn't really matter to him at the end of the day. He wins both sure, ways out. Sure. It does to us as drivers, but uh, sure. it doesn't matter to him. Sure. Alan, can I ask you an Audi question, which is that you've, you've been with this incredibly successful team for some time now, and you are, rightly or wrongly, you know, thought of as an Audi man. I mean, I know we all know what you've done before and stuff, but... Can you describe, tell us, how is the team reacting to being under a lot more pressure than it has been in recent years? I mean, it it became used to winning everything, quite rightly so, because it had the best car. Now... And drivers. (laughs) (laughs) I did pause so you could say that. (laughs) I didn't mean that, Mr. Brabham. No, no, no. (laughs) Well, we we have a Capello question from a reader later on. So, if we, what was I saying? Oh, yes, I know. So, can you tell us about how the team is reacting to actually having to, you know, not work harder because it always works harder, but there's a lot more competition, isn't there? There's definitely more competition now, Um, and it's in the same category, and it's at Le Mans. I think that's the key part of it. When we had competition in North America. Uh, with Penske and with Acura then it was on shorter races two hours 45 minutes it was in the States and it was uh, definitely not at Le Mans and we have got to be honest about it Le Mans was the big prize it's definitely for Audi it is the key prize 
So when we look at that, there's more pressure. Uh, I would say it's positive pressure because it comes from above the sport department. You know, the board and the supervisory board, like Dr. Peter, for example, comes to Le Mans and he's there for the complete week. Mm. And he's uh, the chairman of the supervisory board of the Volkswagen Audi group. And so he's like the big boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of positive that he's got the interest to be there. It's kind of positive that uh, Mr. Dick, who's in charge of the technical development of Audi, not sport, but the whole group of Audi, will be in our pit garage for 24 hours because he wants to be there. That passion's there and that engineering history is there. They're all doctors of engineering. And so I think in that side of it, there is that, as I said before about the DNA aspects of it, that's really quite intrinsic within the company. But it does bring a certain amount of pressure. Um, right now, what I'm I would, saying, yeah, is I understand what you're saying, but I'm giving you a bit of background because there's two types of pressure. There's pressure from the opposition, but there's also internal positive pressure, if you like. But the pressure from the opposition, I think, has made us think a little bit laterally because in the past, Audi's been super reliable and then super fast. But the first thing was get the reliability. And last two years, I would have said, we've had to switch around a little bit because I still think in Le Mans that philosophy is a good one. But in the shorter races, and they mm. still matter mm. as well, mm. and you don't want to give the moral high ground to someone else going into Le Mans, especially if they're French. <laughs> and uh, in that side of things, there's we've had to maybe be a little bit uh, different in the way we work, in the way we race, the way we design the car, the way we think about it, and uh, the structure of the team. And part of that philosophy... I think uh, the driver lineups changed a wee bitty. Uh, the car development definitely changed, and the R18 is a good example of that. You know, it uh, it definitely looks apart, and it's also something that's built for speed. And so, in that side of things, I think there's there's a few areas that have had to be tweaked, and they came from the fact that competition level is higher. And I don't think there's anyone arguing about that at Audi Sport. They're positive about the fact that competition level is higher than it's ever been before. The big fin, it ain't pretty. You don't mean Mikasalo. I don't mean Mikasalo. <laughs> no, not this time. Um, you know, it's not. It's not pretty. It looks pretty crude as a, as a device to stop them flipping it when they when they get sideways. But um, obviously, we hope it works. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, but what do you what do you think in terms of the handling of the car? Do you think it has any any great effect in terms of uh, from your position? I can only say when I've driven the R eighteen mm. and uh, I've never felt it. Mm. I don't know what it would feel like if it wasn't on the car but it was designed mm. into the reg, you know it's to the regulations and integral into it so it's not a case of we've put it on or taken it off and had a, no, no. a differentiation so but I've never felt it I've not felt anything mm. untoward or positive it's just for me when I'm in the car looking forward I don't think about it being there no. when I get out and look at the car then you can't miss it because yeah. it is a huge yeah. big thing in the back but you know, it was designed into it from a safety perspective. And as a driver that has seen a few of these, then I certainly think it's a positive thing, even although it's not necessarily the most elegant looking. Yeah. But I will say, I'll ask you that question in six months' time, mm. when we've seen all of the cars mm. running a few races with 
that big fin in the back, will we even think about it? Yeah. Because yeah. I don't think about it, the change of regulations in F1, I thought they were absolutely ugly as anything when it first came out. And now, and, I'm and used now to they're it. normal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we is, should there, is there a part of you, I mean, I, in spite of all the advantages of a coupe, of a, mm. of a, a roof, is there a part of you that regrets that the R18 isn't an open car? And only in the sense of I have always sort of thought of in terms of a very pure open sports car at Le Mans. It's funny, I've and always thought of very pure close spots. Is that right? Car, really? And probably because is that when because I first. The Fords and the 917s? Yeah, no, it was. It, well, it, it was partly All from the film Le Mans. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And then the second part, which is probably the more critical for me, is when uh, I first went to Le Mans, they were all closed cars yeah. that were up at the front yeah, yeah, and true. so therefore my first time at Le Mans was in a closed car my second my third time at Le Mans it's only my fourth time when I suddenly got yeah. the wind in my hair yeah, yeah. and so from my point of view a little bit of a heart and emotional side is for the closed car okay. from a pure perfor- is, from a pure performance point of view there is definite elements of benefit on the open right. no question right. but uh, ultimately it's the best compromise Right. And right now, with the limited horsepower and torque and things that we've got, yeah, yeah. then that's a closed car. Right. We, sh- right. we should say at this point that um, on the, the flipping side of things, that obviously there's been reports that Peugeot have had a few problems in this with a new car, which is quite mm. alarming. Obviously, you can't really say much about that. But in terms of a driver's perspective, you've driven these cars for a long time. How much has that played on your mind that these cars have the capability to do that? Uh Okay, go to the the first point. There's suggestions and FIA are looking into something apparently, but we don't know. I as a driver, but also I don't think Audi know very much about no. it. Um, it. It's something you're never going to stop in terms of accidents. In terms of accidents with the floor area of two metres by three metres, it's a huge area, and if wind gets underneath it at any angle, hmm. you know... It is tricky. I've been involved in sports car racing since 1997, on and off. And I've been fortunate that uh, I've not been involved in this, but we've seen it before. And uh, what we've also seen is the fact that the ACO then make a big step forward and change the regulations to stop it. You know, they're very proactive in actually fixing that particular point. But the, the, the areas of concern now, I understand, are very, very different to what... They were when, say, Peter Dunbreck hmm. did his uh, yeah. flip at Le Mans back in 1999. Yeah. We, we really ought to take some readers' questions. I'm sorry. Uh, I've interrupted the editor, which is not a really great thing to do. It's all right. I'll, I'll remember. Don't worry. Anyway, anyway I have. Because um, <laughs> we do have quite a few readers' questions. One of them, actually, is about um, the film Truth in 24, in mm. which you are, you are a co-star. Um, well, I think I got any royalties for that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to check. <laughs> Do you want to check now? Or it's all or right, I've checked. I didn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, mean, it didn't need much checking. Um, obviously, you know, it's very understandable that um, a company like Audi should want to do this because obviously it, it, you know, it's a fantastic opportunity for them. I just wondered... What, well, no, I didn't actually wonder. Uh, our reader, Michael, wonders... Um, what impact has it had within the team? You know, the mechanics, the lads, the engineers, the, the everybody. I mean, it's because it's, it's a lot of focus on you, isn't it? Well, that was done by Audi North America. And uh, they had a film crew that came along to a test. They had a film crew that turned up to Sebring. 
then the same guys turned up at the pre-test, I think it was, in the race, and they were kind of there, but they weren't there in your face. We ha- we have got so many interviews and things to do that it's just another interview if it's a face-to-camera one. It, you know, I wouldn't know if it was necessarily yeah, yeah. for a film or <laughs> what it was for too much. It's a series of questions. Um, and they were very unintrusive. There's a lot of the... And I think the success of that film was the fact that uh, a lot of the quips and comments, nobody knew that they were being filmed because yeah. it was a huge mm, yeah. boom microphone yeah. mm. and a long lens camera. And it was a real fly in the wall. When I saw the final edit at Petit Le Mans at the end of the year, and we, it was on the Sunday morning after the race. Race finishes at 10 o'clock uh, Saturday night. Celebrations finished about one then at nine o'clock in the morning we're all in the truck and uh, they put up in the big plasma and we were all flabbergasted first of all how good it looked and obviously it's a fantastic story you know struggling from behind Mm. pushing 100 percent finally getting the victory at Le Mans but then the other thing was there was we looked at each other I remember Tom looking at me and me looking at Tom at one point and think what no when did you say that or when was this happening because none of us remembered about 75% of the footage being filmed. Mm. You know, my mm. lap of Le Mans, I know when it was done, when I did the audio for that, it was done prior, to, like five minutes before the press conference started at Le Mans. And so it was a case of sit down there, do an audio of this, do it, and then off to the next thing. But uh, the, the positive response of that particular point of the film absolutely shocked me. Never mind the response of the whole film and how many people have said that it sort of goes down as one of the best, not just necessarily motorsport, but, you know, stories about sport, if you like. And I think it was because it was a fly in the wall and it was mm. true life. Yeah, they are mm. the best. One to show your grandchildren, anyway. Um, well, I've just got two children. Crikey me, give me, give me a wee bit of time for grandkids. Forward planning. Forward planning. Um, this comes from Ricardo T., and he is the vice president of the Dindo F- Capello fan club. Who's the president? Dindo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, anyway, he wants to know how much you will miss uh, being teammates with Dindo next year. Uh, I, Dindo was my teammate from the moment I stepped into Audi. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about him, he smoked, he was extremely unfit, he spoke about three words of English of which you couldn't (laughs) announce on radio, that's for sure, (laughs) and uh, he was extremely naturally talented and fast, but he was not really sure why or how. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, there's times, he, I remember he stuck it on pole in Portland that year, <laughs> in 2000, and the car was not good to drive. And he whacked it on pole. And I came, he came in and I said, so how did you do that? Went, I don't know. <laughs> and he was being honest he didn't know and that was him but through the course of the last times he's we've won a lot of races together we've lost a few we've had a few moments in the back of the truck with just bitter desperation and frustration uh, we've spent a lot of time away from the circuit he's learned to speak a bit of English I've learned a bit of Italian he stopped smoking he's super fit and he's probably one of the best teammates and mates that a driver could ever have and you, I don't think anybody could replace Dindo in any format but what I'm pretty sure of is that when he does decide to hang up his helmet and uh, work maybe more on being the chairman of his own fan club <laughs> or Facebook fan club <laughs> then he will be someone that will still be around because uh, his experience and input and even now we talk about the R18 or at Sebring, some of the detail and the areas of finesse that he's got that I don't or Tom doesn't feel or look for. And so there's a hell of a lot more to Dindo Capello than what I would have said 99.9% of people can actually see. Mm. So th th that's a yes, you'll miss him, yeah? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from somebody called Abel Cruz from Barcelona. I know yeah. Abel. No, 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 I'm joking. <laughs> 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 Tell you, you've got to watch this guy. You're probably getting that impression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably best. I wish I was doing this. Is this in the hey, this could be Mark Janet under a pseudonym. It could well yeah. be. You just don't know. You haven't, asking the, about, you haven't uh, heard the question. Sort of yeah. setups anything, <laughs> <Right. is he? laughs> well, we'll come to that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Anyway, it begins, hola, Alan. <laughs> hola. By the way, that's Spanish for hi, Alan. Yeah. Um, he says that you drove... 33 laps at the DTM finale in 2005 without your right-hand door after a clash with Alex Margaritas. And you were still doing good times. He says, how did you manage to concentrate with the door missing? To be honest with you, I've omitted that whole season from my memory and I've got no clue what he's talking about. Moving on then. <laughs> it was... It there's one point I do I didn't actually remember until he's brought it up about the whole door incident at Hockenheim but I lost the door and uh, the thing about a DTM car is you've got your visor up and I had to sort of pull the visor down but the exhaust gases are very the exhaust pipe basically is mm. right there beside the driver so in certain corners the exhaust gases would come into the cockpit and uh, that wasn't exactly that nice I had watery eyes and a bit of a, a mm. cough for a wee while but uh, it didn't help the performance of the car, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> you noticed that, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I did notice it. But I'll tell you what, the car was nice and cool. <laughs> Even though the exhaust was there, it was nice and cool. Okay, good. Good answers. He's very good. He's very good, Mr. McNish, isn't he? Good fun, good entertainment. Did you just not enjoy the whole DTM thing? It was just not Honestly, you. not really. No. There was... I, what happened was that when I sort of rejoined Audi... Uh, the R10 hmm. was starting for 2006, and you know DTM was what they were doing. Uh, the the cars themselves are very technically advanced for a touring car, 
the racing is quite aggressive. Mm. You know, you basically barge into people at times. Mm. Uh, the think the two things that I didn't like about it was the fact that uh, always going back to these odd little tracks like Oschersleben and yeah, Lausitzring yeah, and yeah. circuits mm. that you don't go to in any other formula yeah. apart from maybe German F3. And uh, that's that I didn't necessarily like when you've been to Suzuka or Road America or Laguna Seca or some of these sure. fantastic tracks then you know it's a bit different shall we say mm. uh, the other thing was that uh, I don't think it necessarily suited my style of racing <coughs> to be mm. honest with you mm. and uh, in that side of it it didn't really click and especially when you're racing against guys like Matthias Ekstrom who has been doing it now for 10 mm. or 12 years yeah, yeah, sure. and to build up that level of experience within one season when you do zero testing in mm. reality mm. and just go to races, then uh, it's, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world as, well, we know DC yeah, well, sure. and there's plenty of drivers. Maker that have, and yeah, Maker and, and, and yeah, yeah. Ralph and yeah. there's quite a lot of people that have uh, found it a bit harder than what yeah. they see on the face yeah. and that was definitely one of them. But uh, in terms of a touring car championship, there's no sh- no point denying it it's a strong championship mm. and I was just pleased that a Scotsman won it last year yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. just say yeah. that as an Audi man <laughs> <laughs> this question comes from someone who sounds like he's a Scotsman his name is Rory McLaren um, good name good name and he, yeah and he says uh, he wants to ask you about the race of a thousand years in Adelaide correct how many years ago uh, 2000 Correct. Thirty mm, first yep. of December two thousand. Okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> um, In excess, we're playing afterwards, by the way. <laughs> and what did you do after that? Uh, anyway, can you remind us? Yeah, the crocodile livery on the. Yeah, crocodile livery. Can you remember? Can you remind us why that was such a challenging race for you? It was my birthday on the twenty ninth of December, and uh, I spent it in Adelaide Hospital, most of it. Uh, because it's actually Dindo Capello's fault, when I think back about it. I was doing a photo shoot prior to the first session with uh, Dindo, and I had to wear my kilt, and he was wearing an Italian-Scottish tartan tie. And uh, then I was getting changed, and I threw my kilt down, and I twisted around to pick up my overall, and I bulged the disc in my back. And I got in the car in a bit of pain and after a couple of laps I couldn't press the brake pedal so I had to come in and they sort of lifted me out of the car went to see our doc who did what he does and uh, then I had to go to hospital after that and uh, I was sort of carried into the ambulance off to the hospital and uh, the woman said name Alan McNish date of birth because he always 29th of December and she went oh happy birthday where's your credit card that was the first thing she asked me (laughs) which I thought was not a very nice present but uh, yeah I didn't drive I did literally two laps before the start of the race so I didn't drive then I didn't drive on the Saturday Dindo stuck it on pole and I was leading the championship and Dindo was the only other driver that could win the championship and this is where one of the things that I've got a lot of time for our team spirit, if you like, because I couldn't do the warm-up. And Dr. Ulrich and our doctor came to see me, and I'd laying on the floor of my hotel room for the three days, basically, uh, to try to relieve the pressure from my back and to let it settle down. And they came to see and said, right, you can do the start, because I needed to complete a certain number of laps to then be eligible for points to win the championship. Um, so you can do the start and uh, 
you know, we see how it runs, but the opportunities for you to, to do that. And so I did. We, Dindo and I won the race. I won the championship. And then two hours later, my contract with Audi ceased because I went to Toyota. So if you think about it this way, they could easily Absolutely. have said, Absolutely. no, you're no, not no, driving. You're going, yeah. Dindo would have won the championship and they'd had number one in the car. Yeah, yeah. But that, I think, takes a heck of a lot of moral strength to yeah. for a team boss to do that in the circumstances. And also for Dindo, as a teammate, to accept that. Yeah. Because I'm pretty, well, Nigel, you'll know. Plenty of drivers up and down the pit lane mm. that would have uh, fought like oh, mad to ensure geez. that the result was a different yeah, one. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, yeah. I don't think there's any better story to describe the spirit of the team, is there? I mean, no, 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 it's, no a, that, that, it's one of these I, memories, I and it was also one of the reasons that I knew when uh, I came back from Formula One, it would be to Audi, because that type of mentality. It's a black or white mentality, and you win or you lose. And if you lose, you fix it. You don't, you know, complain. Mm. You argue about it internally. Don't wash your laundry in public, and you fix it. But then on the other side of it, you've got that sort of slight arm round the shoulder. And I do believe that that's something that uh, quite a few F1 team bosses could learn from. Do not have, is absolutely. Is the way to deal with people and drivers of people yep. we work on emotions we work on a lot of passion and uh, you know if you beat them around the head it doesn't always work no, and no. with our uh, our organization there's a lot of trying to lift people up when yeah. they're maybe finding it tough and certainly when i was lying in my hotel room seeing my championship yeah, potentially yeah. slipping away in the first for audi as well you know it was uh, there was a few tense phone calls back and forward to see you know how things were going to turn out. Mm. What was the attitude when you, well, when you first had to tell Audi, I've got this opportunity with Toyota and I want to take it. Presumably they understood. They were presumably they were sad, but they could see why you were doing it. Yeah, I, I've always been very honest with teams when things are going well, but <coughs> things are not going well, or alternatively in situations like this where they're going well, but another opportunity arises because mm. I'm of the opinion you're better to be upfront with it mm. because uh, you meet people more than once in life. And yes, uh, if you do them over the first time around, they don't yeah. forget. Yeah. And that's drivers as well. Yeah. So if you, yeah. you know, there's a few drivers that have still got their names in <laughs> memory. But in terms of that side of it, there's... Uh, you know, I basically said to Dr. Ulrich, this is the situation, this is the opportunity. It's something that obviously as a young driver coming through, I was very much wanting yeah. in my early career. It didn't quite happen. The chances there now, I'd like to take it and go for it. Sure. And it's no re reflection on anything Audi's <laughs> doing. In fact, to some extent, it was a very positive reflection on Audi that mm. you know there was someone going from their programs yes, into yes, Formula yes, One. Sure. Uh, and he understood entirely. Yeah. Uh, the person that took my seat was Tom Christensen, and uh, he kept it warm pretty well and <laughs> won a few Lamottes in the meantime. <laughs> this is the, uh, the last of the reader's questions. Well, it's the last one we have time for, I'm afraid, Alan. Um, and it is about Formula One, which is uh, uh, quite neat. Um, this comes from a chap who goes under the name of Bone Dwarf, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that aside. Um, he wants to know if you have any regrets about that decision to go to Toyota and to go to Formula One racing. Possibly I'd have won a few more Le Mans, but 
I, I'm not into regrets, to be honest with you. Looking well, back just one, makes one you feel One thirty R, you probably regret, don't you? Uh, no, <laughs> what do I regret about one thirty R? Because talking about there um, on qualifying, the last run in qualifying for the last Grand Prix of the year in Suzuka, I attempted it flat because I was sure it was going to be flat, and it was for three quarters of the corner. But when I had a big tank slapper coming out and reversed through the barrier, I realised it wasn't. And uh, Sid Watkins, the medical doctor, said that I wasn't going to race. And what I regret was not giving it a go at flat because that's what you do. You try to push the boundaries. I regret the fact he changed the track the next year uh, yeah. because yeah. it wasn't the corner's fault. No. It was the fact we didn't have enough rear downforce and it wasn't quite yeah. flat yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing I regret. In and terms that's of the, not the, the same corner. No, it's no, not. It just isn't. In terms of the whole season, it's very frustrating. You know, the car from the first race to the last race had an engine upgrade and no other development. And... Uh, as a first-year team, they definitely struggled. Uh, but there's no point looking back and getting grumpy. You know, you look forward. The key point for me, though, was I then... Uh, well, Toyota released Mika and I. And uh, straight away, I had a phone call from Flavio Briatore. And he was pushing to do the third driver Friday testing programs. Yeah. And I, I agreed with that. Went to Barcelona on my first lap in the Renault, so the 2002 spec Renault in Barcelona, was quicker than my qualifying lap in the Toyota, mm. you know, a few months before. Mm. And that just gave me a very, very clear indication that there's a massive difference between the people at the front that can win mm. and the people that maybe would just want to win. And uh, that was also a reaffirmation in my mind that why are you in racing? You're in racing to win, to be at the front. You're not just in racing to be a number and to be part of it. No. And because, uh, you know, you've got to remember why you started in the first place and why you get up in the morning. Sure. Mm. Uh, how, did, how did Toyota manage to get it so incredibly wrong over such a long time, spending so much money? I think a lot of teams find get it wrong in motorsport and Formula 1 I think they probably underestimated the challenge a little bit uh, growing a team from 300 people as they were with the rally programme and the sports car programme into a team of over a thousand mm. trying to get all these people to work together trying to do it in a new base which I can understand in Germany because they already had that nucleus of people and structure there uh, I think one of the big things was Ovi Anderson had the total control and then through the course of mm. the programme then his control became a little bit or his roles became different. Mm. I think right at our time there was no technical direction and uh, when they did get a strong technical direction it was when they started to have an, an improvement in performances when Mike Gascoigne arrived yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they sort of dropped off again. But the big thing I think was their expectation was far, far too high and their management structure was so different to what you, I think you need in motorsport, where you need somebody there fighting at the front, you know, some mm. leader, and everybody to follow. And I think right to the end, they were just, they were always slow to respond. Yep. Everything took too long. Mm. Well, it's very interesting because I follow what the car manufacturers do, not in racing, mm. as just in racing, but also in the road car division, and they had 27 uh, board members of the TMC of Toyota Motor Corporation. And just two weeks ago, they cut it back to 11. 
Mm. And so, and that was for the, that exact reason. Mm. It was because they were too slow to react yeah. to things. And in motorsport, you need a two-week reaction, not a two-month <coughs> or a two-year, a two-week reaction because you go to the next race mm. and you need to improve because if you don't improve every couple of weeks in some area, whether it be in a pit stop, whether it be in you know, structure organisation, whatever it is, you go backwards sure. because the opposition do. Yeah. And I agree with you, but the thing that was a little bit frustrating I would have said for everybody involved at one time or another was there were some very good people there really really clever people and some really hard working guys and girls and I think they didn't achieve their total potential um, but you know mm. motorsports mm. littered with situations like that all through the times absolutely I'll mm. be yeah. keen to see where they end up next Mm, yeah. That's the, mm. the interesting factor mm, yeah. where they end up next I mean, because they'll definitely be involved in motorsport now <laughs> and see it'll be at a high <laughs> level. And, mm. you know, again, looking at what they're trying to do in the marketplace, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was well, like 24 hours. I mean, they still have got NASCAR, which is, you know, they're. Yeah. And there's a Toyota engine back at Le Mans this year. Yeah. Is that the start yeah. of another campaign? Well, it's funny because it Norio, who was my engine guy at, uh, at Toyota, he was in the pits in Sebring. And it was quite funny to see him wandering down the pit lane. And he's, you know, he's a clever little dude, so I'm pretty sure that he was uh, seeing the lie of the land. Mm-hmm. And Jens Markart, my other, is now the boss of BMW Motorsport. Oh, yeah. So the people have moved on. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's still there's very good people in that structure yeah. and organisation. Yeah. I mean, the, the force in sports car racing at the moment, the manufacturer's coming back. Mm. It's, it's looking really good, isn't it? I mean, we're, yeah. we're in the middle of a good era with the Audi versus Peugeot battle, which is always great, but there's, there's potential for more. I think if you look at the depth, we were talking about the depth of drivers earlier on in teams, mm. um, but if you look at the depth of manufacturers involved, not just in LMP, but if you look mm. at GT, you know, the the Ferrari, Porsche, Aston yeah. battle is absolutely fantastic there. Yeah. And then you add in BMW, and, you know, they had a, a good strong run in <coughs> Sebring. Uh, and you've got us, you've got uh, Peugeot, you've got Aston, you've got the Acura mm. that is now back, or badged Honda, whatever it is going to mm. turn out to be. Yeah. And uh, with the rumours of other ones coming, mm. then it, it looks like it's coming back into, I would say, a golden era of Le Mans. Sure. Yes. Not just in terms of sports car racing, but the Le Mans. And then you add in the Intercontinental Le Mans Cup mm. and this effective World Championship, taking the best races from all over the globe, whether it be Sebring, 12 Hours, Petit, Le Mans, Spa, Silverstone, whatever. I think then it does become quite exciting mm. and enticing. And there is a, there is a, I think the word they use a lot is relevance. And I do think that they're probably quite right. There is a relevance for the road car manufacturer to mm. be involved in this t- yes. type of sport yeah. right now yeah. because they can spread it across a lot of different areas. It's not just marketing, it's no. technical and there's a bit of marketing on the end of it. And uh, that's quite an interesting philosophy. Actually, it's the inter- intercontinental races, uh, have I got this wrong or is there not a driver's championship? I'm, I'm no, you sure. haven't got it wrong. No, I mean, that seems to me completely absurd. Yes, it does to me as well as a driver. Well, I sure, have to yeah. say, it's, yeah. it's quite odd because, uh, you know, we could go out and dominate the rest of the championship <coughs> and come away with a few trophies, but not a championship to no, no. say at the end. And I, yeah, I can't quite fathom it personally, but I'm sure there's a good reason. 
I wonder if we'll have a world championship well, they, in a few years as well. But they used to be a world sports car championship. Yeah. 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 But surely it's a no-brainer for yeah. the IMC yeah. to be... Yeah, I, I was out in, out in Sebring for the for the race and there's a, I'm doing a story for the next issue which is on, on Le Mans and on the new car and uh, I asked Dr Ulrich directly, you know, what do you think about this world championship? Is it is it going to happen? Is it going to be, you know... And he said it's not it's not the ACO's decision, it's the FIA. It comes down to, to their, whether they want to jump on board. But what conceivable reason could they, could they have for not instituting a world championship? I don't know, because you've got the GT1 yeah. world championship, maybe, yeah. which is... Uh, you know, it's a different thing entirely. Mm. But uh, you have to say that, and this is where I think it it does stack up, if you like. <clears throat> Le Mans has still got, you know, 250,000 spectators that mm. arrive at the event. You've got, uh, you know, 70,000 Brits or whatever it is. You've yeah. got worldwide TV. You've got all the manufacturers. And there was 17, 19 XF1 drivers sitting on the grid, including Nigel Mansell last year. Mm. And, you know, if you look at the pedigree that's on the grid, then it is World Championship quality. Yeah. And uh, that's the, the thing that it would be very nice, I've got to say. And, and mm. coming from a biased opinion, it would be very nice yeah, if there was a World Championship and also a driver's World yeah, Championship. Because it's, but it's so logical. I would like it? to I mean, fight for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, who, who doesn't want to be a World Champion? I mean, Dr. Ulrich's view is that they, they have to establish the Intercontinental Cup and then see what happens and it's going to take a it's going to take a few years but you think Jean Todd is in the perfect position he knows sports car racing from his days at Peugeot um, I don't think he's a fan of the GT1 World Championship he can't be a fan of the World Touring Car Championship because that's looking really weak this year and there's a championship sitting there waiting for a world title which thoroughly deserves it yeah, so. the problem with GT1 is that, is that it's not the world's great cars with the world's great drivers is it? no it's good, but it's not. Yeah. It's not real sports car racing, is it? You, know, you, you were talking about relevance. It seems to me. I mean, I, this may only be me, but we have cars in Formula One because of its relevance, and we have other things happening down the road in Formula One because of their relevance. For me, it doesn't add anything whatsoever to the spectacle or the sport. I mean, when I was watching the Grand Prix in Australia, all I, all I hear about is batteries charging or batteries not charging or wings opening or not opening. And I mean, yeah, what we want is surely is just great racing with great racing cars, don't we? Or don't we? I think if you go back, you could say the same about when wings were introduced or traction control and these sort of things I think it, there is an evolution um, yes we want great racing but there has got to be racing to have great racing so you've got to have people involved in it the side of you know whether you then make it fabricated in a spectacle for a spectacle sake is a different thing mm. and you know I watched Australia as well and uh, there was certainly uh, the Sutil incident in qualifying looked a bit frightening mm. uh, when obviously popped the, yeah, the wing, wing and still on the curb, the curb and at the same time. off you go and it just shows you how sensitive it can be and when it goes wrong it can go wrong um, because you rely on that sort of downforce you know there, there's no question about it but uh, I think the, the important factor is whether you're trying to fabricate racing or whether um, you're I don't know. I, I do believe that you've got to have evolution. 
and you've got to push forward regulations to create that um, because otherwise you I can you see from a, from a car manufacturer's point of view, of course I see it, and I see that the relevance is important. But f but the people in the grandstands, Alan, simply don't care whether the curse is charging or not or whether no. the wing's opening or not. Mm. And the reason they don't is because they've paid good money to go and watch a great motor race. Well, they should come to Le Mans then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when I was talking to Dr. Boretsky, the, the great engine man at Audi, uh, when I was out at Sebring, he was saying there's no point having any um, energy recovery systems on a car until it actually adds something. And it's not it's not yet adding something, is it? In, in well, this is because obviously energy recovery systems are allowed in sports cars. And uh, Audi, like I'm sure they are with other technologies as well, are looking at these things. Mm. And uh, the, the, their philosophy is quite clear, exactly that. That unless it's adding something, unless it's better than what mm. we already have, and yeah. we've got a very efficient V6 turbo diesel, um, then why use it unless mm. it's a benefit? Absolutely. And it, it's kind of logical, mm. but I uh, suppose that's where you're coming from. It, you know, is it adding yeah, benefit? I, I, is it adding benefit from the manufacturers learning to relevant to the road cars? I don't necessarily think so. No. In what I see in Melbourne, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then is it adding to the spectacle of racing? If there's more overtaking, then yes, there is. But I, what I saw there suggest to me there might be more overtaking on the straight up in, in Sepang yeah, for example but again I think, you, I think your word is the right one when you say fabricate yeah. hmm. um, and we've had endless conversations about this they, they, they fundamentally won't address the problem that you know the aerodynamics prevent the cars from following each other through corners and, and that's why there's no overtaking well we've got a lot of aerodynamic grip on the sports car a heck yeah, of a lot, yeah. but the balance is very different, and the way it's made way it's is very, very different exactly. to yeah, what sure. it is in a Formula One car. Yeah. And we can follow. We still have got aerodynamic wake, and the car becomes a little bit understeery or unstable when mm. you're behind other cars, mm. um, and it changes whether it be an LMP2 or an <coughs> LMP1 or a GT car. But you, you lose a little bit, but you don't lose anything like you no, do in a Formula One no, car. No. And the thing that I find a little bit frustrating is especially now when you've in Australia massive uh, variety of lap times because of tyre usage then you still didn't see any overtaking somebody no. was two three seconds a lap faster yeah. and they couldn't get past no, no. and no, that's no. something that obviously should flag up yeah quite a big yeah. thing to say well ooh, yeah. maybe it's not a wee yeah. bit of wing or a wee bit of this yeah. mm. we haven't got much time left Alan and I'm sure you're quite keen to have some free time before the day ends completely um is it too early before we go is it too early for you to say how you feel about Le Mans this year in the sense of can you get a f enough of a feel for the car and do you know enough about what the opposition are up to to think yep you know we're in with a real chance I think the basics of what we've got in the R18 in terms of the closed car the the engine package Aero driver lineups team, and the fact that even although we had a one, two, three last year, we realised we weren't quite there in terms of pure performance. We gained in other areas, but not in pure performance. I think we've got a good project and a good car and chance. With regard to the opposition, then they're working very hard to ensure that as well. The Aston Martin we haven't seen. And so I'm not really sure how that will actually turn out. But, uh, you know, George Howard Chapel knows...
quite well how to be successful in sports car racing. So, you know, there might be a little trick up their sleeve. But what's overriding everything, as much as I feel confident what we've got, I've been to Le Mans quite a few times. I've led it so many times. I've been in positions like in 2007 where we had a three and a half lap lead over pure speed over all of the opposition, including our teammates, and we didn't win. That you've got to first beat the race before you beat any of the opposition. And that's yeah. the little caveat at Le Mans. It's, I think it's quite rightly deemed as the world's hardest race. And uh, there are so many facets to it, which makes it such a spectacle and makes it so alluring, but makes it a very, very sweet victory when you're there, but a bitter, bitter mistress when she takes the victory away. So I'll wait to June to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I'm sure a lot of our readers and a lot of people I know will be rooting for Audi at Le Mans this coming summer. And uh, for you as well because you're quite rightly a popular guy, at which point we should um, just remind everybody of our subscription offer. We do this at the beginning and we do it at the end. It's now a tradition. But let's be honest, you know, without subscriptions, we ain't going to be here. So to remind you, you can save 23% when you subscribe to Motorsport magazine and you will get a free copy of Tiffany Dell's autobiography, which would otherwise cost you a penny less than 20 quid. Do you have Tiff's autobiography, Alan? No, I don't. Well, <laughs> do you subscribe to Motorsport? I will now. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. I think he might, I think he's the perfect guest. I've now got my dad's Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> and under full price. <laughs> Oh boy, good, okay, I think that's just about it with it. Uh, uh, thank you so much for listening everybody and of course thank you to the great people from Audi who brought you here tonight. Uh, we do appreciate it a lot because we know how busy you are. Uh, so thank you very much for that. And of course uh, we'll all be back uh, next time. That's uh, Nigel Roback, our editor-in-chief, um, Damien Smith, our editor, and Ed Foster, our associate editor, and uh, just me. You know. So we'll see you next time and thanks again. Good night. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Sport Magazine for the very best in motor racing.